Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings, as was mentioned, 2 Kings 17. And uh, certainly even now we're leaning on the everlasting arms. I know that I am. 2 Kings 17. And we're going to pick up uh, with our story from the Kings and Chronicles series. Uh, We did have a little break last week. Uh, with our brother Tom Aiken, and uh, the few weeks prior to that, we took a look at some of the minor prophets, which hopefully you caught that these minor prophets uh, coincide with the timing of the Kings and Chronicles. These are prophets that went and pleaded uh, on behalf of God with the people of God during that time of the Kings and Chronicles. So hopefully you put those pieces together because that's uh, quite important. Uh, We're going to pick up in our story, and I I would say at the outset, uh, this is probably not one of the most prominent passages of Scripture, but certainly important, just like all other passages of Scripture. And what we find here in 2 Kings 17, as we're going to read, is we find in some sense the culmination of uh, the the northern kingdom of Israel. It was about 200 years earlier that the uh, kingdom of Israel was divided into two, the northern and the southern kingdoms. And uh, to be quite frank, it's a very sad history for the northern kingdom of Israel. If I were to look at the northern kingdom of Israel as though I was looking back at someone's life, uh, it's enough to bring tears to your eyes. It's a very very miserable history. Think about this for a moment. Here were people that God had called out of Egypt by his mighty arm. He had rescued them. He had delivered them and brought them out of bondage and called them as a people unto himself. And here, uh, some, I believe about 700 years later, one generation after the next, from that time of Egypt to here, the people in the northern kingdom especially had strained very far from the God of heaven. The God who called them out of Egypt, who called them out of bondage, was kept at a distance at best by these people. The people were idolaters, they were disobedient, they were self-serving, they did not follow the God that called them out of Egypt. It's a very, very sad story. And what we're going to find here in 2 Kings 17 for the northern kingdom of Israel, and eventually it would be so for the southern kingdom of Judah as well, is that a people who were once called out of bondage are now taken, in a very literal sense, back into bondage again. What a sad story. If you were to look at somebody's life and see someone who God had saved, that's what Egypt pictured to us. A people that were saved from judgment, saved from bondage. But if you were to look at a person's life 
who was saved out of bondage, saved out of judgment, saved by the mighty hand of God. But then follow the history and see them at the very end back into bondage again, back into slavery again. What should have been an ending characterized by victory. Well, that's what Egypt was. It was victory. It was liberty. It was release from bondage, release from slavery. But this ending would be characterized by the very same bondage that they were once subjected to some 700 years before. And again, if you look at the northern kingdom of Israel, it's about a 200-year span from what I understand from when the kingdom divided to this point when they're taken into captivity. And you may ask yourself, why, how, how could it be that a people that were called out of Egypt, that were freed, that were given liberty, would find themselves back in the very same place again? How could it be? What was the cause of this? Disobedience. Idolatry. Sin, to be short. A people that would not bow the knee to the will of God, but instead bowed the knee to their own self-will. Because the gods of the idolatrous nations around them gave them what they wanted. Were appealing to the flesh, allowed them to live a life of sin and disregard. That was this people. And it's a very sad story. And brothers and sisters, I know that I, and I trust that you, don't want to end this way. I certainly don't want to have a history that people will look back on and see a history characterized by sin and disobedience and slavery and an ending that finishes on this life in bondage. I don't want to end that way. I don't want to take the same path. So what is the solution? Well, you know the solution because I just told you the cause. It was sin in disobedience, it was an idolatrous people that would not bow the knee to God, but they served other gods. They followed the idols of the land around them. And I know that this is old stuff because when you go through the, the kings, we went through judges, we went through uh, the kings, uh, uh, Samuel and the kings, and we've gone into the Chronicles, and it's the same story. But be reminded that those lands had their idols. Our land has its idols. And it is no stretch whatsoever to say that God's people today struggle in many of the same ways that the people there in Israel did struggle with idolatry, bowing the knee and serving things other than God himself. And what you will reap from that is an ending of bondage. It's a life of misery, first of all, but it's an ending of bondage and sin and destruction. But there is another way. Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. I'm not saying that an obedient Christian life will be a life free from troubles. But the word of God does promise that it'll be like a a, a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. There is another way. It's a path for the New Testament believer of walking in the spirit. Of submitting to God. So that's our introduction. Let's read uh, the passage here before us. Second Kings 17. We're going to be introduced here. Well, we, we thought this morning about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're introduced today in Second Kings 17 to a few other kings Certainly not kings that we would look up to in any way. And this would be the last king of Israel, the last king of the northern tribe of Israel. And here we are, 2 Kings 17 and verse 1 says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned nine years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. I'm just going to add one little footnote there so that it doesn't. To distract us as we continue to read my understanding of verse two. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's pretty clear as to what that's saying, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. It seems to indicate that this king, though evil, he was not to the same magnitude of the wickedness of some of the kings that preceded him. It seems to be that's what that is saying. Let's continue. Verse three, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him and Hosea became his vassal. And paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now, the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. And the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala by the Habor, the river Gozan, and the city of the Medes, and the cities of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they feared other gods." And had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. Also, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every hill, every high hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense on all the high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols, of which the Lord had said, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets 
every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffen their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord, their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them for they followed idols became idolaters and went out after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord, their God made for themselves a molded image and two calves made a wooden image and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they had made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of plunders until he had cast them from his sight for he tore Israel from the house of David that they and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin for the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam which he did And they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And indeed, they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there and let him teach the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow 
their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear. Him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not Obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also, their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did, even to this day. And that's the story. So we're introduced in Second Kings 17 to a new king. He would be the last king of Israel. His name is Hosea, the son of Elah. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a sad statement to know that all of the kings of Israel, all 19, I believe there were, all 19 kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were wicked kings. All of them did evil. None of them followed the Lord. None of them bowed the knee to the God of heaven who brought them out of the land of Egypt. None of them. And Hosea, in that sense, was no different And like many who are unwilling to bow the knee to the God of heaven, to receive his will in their life, Hosea would resort to man-made efforts to keep things together. Because when a person or a nation refuses to bow the knee to the God of heaven, refuses to commit themselves to the will of God, to the word of God, to the commandments of God, things don't work very well. Things tend to fall apart because sin, we know, is destructive. Sin leads to death and destruction. So Hosea, like many who you may know of or see in your day-to-day life, resorted to human means to man-made efforts to keep the nation together, to keep things from totally exploding, which we know that they do because we just read it. They're carried off into bondage and into captivity. So what does he do? It says in verse 3 that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. What Hosea determined to do, and this was not uncommon at this point for the nation, because the Assyrians were growing very powerful, he chose rather than to fight or to stand up to the enemy, he chose to enter into a relationship of voluntary servitude to the enemy king. He willingly chose to enter into a relationship of voluntary servitude to the enemy king. 
an awful decision, an awful decision. I can only imagine as Hosea came to whatever terms he did with the Assyrian king, we'll pay you X amount and, you know, you leave us alone. And I could only imagine as with the enemy kings that the king of Assyria continuously put the clamps down on Hosea. I'm sure the king of Assyria was not okay with uh, uh, a minimalistic type approach. I'm sure what he wanted from Hosea was blood, so to speak. He wanted more and more. And it's exactly the way that the kings of the world work. Hosea probably saw in this Assyrian king, number one, he was afraid because the Assyrians were very powerful. And Hosea probably saw the threat, I'm sure, as Shalmaneser came up against him, the threat of war and of defeat. But I'm sure that Hosea also saw if he could come to peace with the enemy king, that in that he would have for his own nation some level of peace. He could rest in the power of the Assyrians because he could come to peace through a treaty. And so what I see with Hosea is a man, a leader of God's people, who rather than stand and fight, who rather than, I would submit, even before standing and fighting, who would rather than bow the knee to God and plead for help, knowing that this is a nation in dire trouble, he chose rather by human means to enter into a relationship of voluntary servitude to an enemy king. And as I begin to think about this, I thought, how often, how often in the life of the Christian do we choose rather to enter into relationships of voluntary servitude to the kings of the world around us? The world around us is filled with enemy kings, filled with enemy kings. There are kings in this world that rule the lives of people all around us, money, greed, power, sex, all of that. Enemy kings. And oftentimes, we may find ourselves unwilling to stand and fight. You know what it says in the book of Judges? You know what we find? In order for the people to have peace, they had to war. They were brought into oppression by people around them. And it wasn't until God raised up a leader that would go to war with the enemy that the people would ever find peace. And it repeats it time and time again. Once God raised up a leader and the people were led into battle and they fought the enemy, then they could have peace. Then they could have rest. But Hosea chose instead to enter into voluntary servitude to the enemy king rather than standing and fighting. Now, you and I, for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture is clear. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. 
We are not in a fleshly battle. But we are in a spiritual battle. And all around us, there are spiritual kings, spiritual enemies that we must stand up to. And it's going to take war in that sense. But spiritual warfare. And so when we look at the life of the New Testament Christian, we find spiritual weaponry, like the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which can do the damage to free us from the spiritual kings around us, the wicked kings. Second Corinthians 10 says this, for though we walk in the flesh, that's this body, I walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We're not in a fleshly warfare, a fleshly war. We are not at war with people out there, but we're at war with the principles of the God of this world out there. We are at war with what he preaches, with what he puts out there as that which could bring peace, just like Hosea wanted peace and he wanted security. The God of this world has put out there so many things that people look to. And and in them, they think they will find peace and security. In them, they think they will find joy. But there is no peace apart from him. There is no joy apart from him. We need the king of kings. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So brothers and sisters, we don't swing literal knives or swords or shoot literal guns. But we are in a spiritual war. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's what God can do for the believer who will bow the knee to him, who will take in that sense. And it's not easy. That's why I say it is a war. It's a beautiful picture from the Old Testament that this is going to take from you and I. The mindset of warfare. It may take you rising up early to get on your knees in the word of God. It may take you staying up late To be in God's presence. Because only by God in his strength and his power can we have victory over the enemy kings around us. Hosea chose instead man-made effort. He'd come up with a treatise. He'd come up with a truce. Instead of seeking, humbly seeking repentance before God and allowing God to free him from the Assyrian king. That's the picture. And so it says in verse four, the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea for he, that's Hosea, had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and he brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now, you know this, brothers and sisters. Voluntary servitude to the kings of the world around you will result in spiritual bondage. That is exactly where Hosea ended up. 
he willingly chose to bow the knee voluntarily to the king by man-made means. I'm going to come to peace with this king. I will not fight. I will not first plead to God because I need him. Otherwise, I'll never defeat this enemy. This enemy was bigger and stronger and badder and so forth. And that's why he was afraid. So he voluntarily subjected himself. He was a willing servant, and now he's an unwilling slave. From willing servitude to bondage. That's the king of Israel. And it's an awful testimony. It's an awful testimony. It's an awful story of a man who had a waiting God in heaven, a God who would bend the ear to his miserable people, Judges said that he, the book of Judges says he was moved with compassion by the pity of his people. He had the king of kings and lord of lords, the God of heaven, who could, who could free him from the Assyrian regime. But he would not bow the knee. He would not subject himself to the God of heaven. And that willing servitude to the king of Assyria ended up in bondage. And exactly the same thing is true in the Christian life. Don't tamper with sin. Don't play with sin. Don't seek peace by serving the kings of this world. Because that willing servitude to those kings around you may very well end up in utter bondage. It wouldn't have been easy for him. I'm not saying it would have. The Assyrians were powerful, but he needed to bow the knee to the God of heaven, and he wouldn't do that. He would not repent. That very famous verse in Second Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent, I will hear from heaven. He had a God that was king above all kings waiting to hear the cry of his people, but he would not repent. He would not bow the knee. And so he ends up in, in, in an unwilling slavery because of that willing servitude. One of the things that I found somewhat ironic is to see where the king of Hosea went. Did you notice that? Here, I'm sure that the Assyrian king was putting the clamps on him. And Hosea is saying, oh, I thought this was a good idea. I'll come in. I'll pay tribute. And it wasn't turning out in any way the way that he thought it would. And I don't know how many Christians you and I may have seen who have done the same thing. They said, yes, I'm going to go do this because it looks great. I know it contradicts what God says, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think that it'll work out okay. That's what Hosea did. And it didn't. And so here in his desperation, did you see where he went? Back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. Never, never seek help by returning to Egypt. God had freed them from Egypt. God had freed them from bondage. He had given them liberty. But here he goes. Not a word is said about any interaction with the God of heaven. Not a word. But he sent messengers back to Egypt seeking help. Incredible. This is how far the people had come. This is how far the northern kingdom of Israel had strayed from God. 
and to think that it started about 200 years before. That's what? Five, six, seven generations of people. It started with the divided heart of Solomon. That's how it started. The divided heart of Solomon because he was not fully devoted to God. And then from there, it went to the convenient worship of Jeroboam. That's how this started. And this is where we find the people. And he's back in Egypt, the place where the bondage began, seeking help to free him from the king of Assyria. Brothers and sisters, we have a God in heaven that wants to hear from us. If you have found yourself in a situation of servitude or utter bondage to the kings of this world in one way or another, you need to go to the God of heaven. You may need the intercession of the God's people. You may. You may need help from the elders that God has put here before you. But ultimately, you need the power and the strength that can only come from the God of heaven. Don't go back to the world and seek help to be freed from your bondage. The world has nothing to offer. How many times have you seen a Christian who's wallowing in some kind of troublesome situation because of sin? They're, they're in maybe a bad relationship or whatever it may be because they didn't follow God's principles. But instead of turning their eyes to heaven, they go out to some other worldly means. Well, I know how I'll remedy this. I'll remedy this by going and picking up some other vice or, or, or seeking some other help other than the God in heaven that's waiting to hear from you. That's exactly where the Israelites were. And what an awful thing for the people to be led by a leader like this. But that's where they were. And that's a lot in the first few verses. So I would submit to you, never seek peace by serving the kings of this world. Never seek help by returning to Egypt. It says in verse 5 that the king of Assyria, and obviously we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. The king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and by the Habor, the river Gozan, in the city of the Medes. So the king of Israel was taken into bondage, and then the Israelites themselves, the city was besieged. They, 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 they encircled it. They cut off their supply lines, I'm sure. And eventually, the people in desperation gave in, and they were carried away into bondage, back into bondage, an awful thing. Now, one point I want to make as we try to hurry through some of this is that here, the way it's laid out in verses 5, 6, and then through to verse 23 is the effect and then the cause, okay? I've already told you many, many things about the cause, so you know what it is. But the way the scripture is laid it out, as opposed to cause and effect, it's effect and then cause. The effect was the carrying away into bondage by the Assyrians. But the cause is laid out in no shortage of detail 
and verses 7 through 23. As the scripture recounts the reasons why the Israelites ended up in this situation. As the scripture recounts why they were carried away into bondage. So the effect is the captivity. The bondage. The cause of that is the idolatry. It is a people that would not bow the knee to the God of heaven. And it's laid out in very clear uh, detail there. We already read through it once, and I'm going to have to hurry through some of these things. One of the things I noticed, and this is one point I want to make from verses 7 through to 23, is that here is a list of sin, and it's detailed, that caused the children of Israel to end up back in bondage. Yet, when I read the list, I don't find anything said of some of the things we might think of. I don't find anything said of lying, cheating, stealing, any of the common things that we might think of when we think of sin. When we think of displeasing God, often these things come to our mind. Well, I did this, I did that, I I, I stole, I cheated, I offended my brother, whatever it is. And I'm not minimizing those things. They are real sin. However, what the scripture highlights in very much detail are sins against directly the God of heaven. It doesn't say anything about some of the things we may think of, but it's all about, and if I could boil it down without going into too many words, it's all about the divided heart of the people of God. They had idolatry. The idolatry, no doubt, caused them to go into all kinds of sins. We know that it led into sexual sins and, 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 and all kinds of other immorality. We know that. But what the scripture highlights as to why they're carried into bondage are sins against the God of heaven directly. Do you follow me? Not so much things against one another, but the core of the issue, the core of the issue brothers and sisters, is not to stop lying, not to stop cheating, not to stop whatever it may be. But the core of the issue is to give your heart fully to God, because idolatry, which is what's highlighted over and over again throughout the book, and especially in this chapter, a people that were given over to pagan worship, they had given their hearts over to other God's no doubt it led into all kind of sin. No doubt it let it manifested itself in all kind of different ways. But brothers and sisters, what we need is not in that sense to stop lying, cheating, stealing. But we need hearts that are fully given over to the God of heaven. That's what we need, because the rest of it flows out of that. We need minds, hearts in our personal time that are given over to him. How often, brothers and sisters, are we communing with the God of heaven? He's there waiting to hear. When we sin, our sin, first and foremost, never forget this, is an offense to God. And we need to be made right with him. Yes, we may need to go and return what we've stolen or whatever the case is or, 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 or make things right. But first and foremost, we need to be made right with God. And too often, I think, because I see it in my own life, 
We think if we keep ourselves from doing some of these little things or if maybe if we even hide it well enough and well, I did it, but I. What we need are hearts given over fully to the God of heaven. That's what we need. Hearts that have removed the idols, cast out the idols and given themselves fully to him. The rest of it flows from that, flows from that. You remember when David committed his great sin, if you want to call it that? He sinned awfully against a man, against a woman. I mean, the whole thing was awful. But in Psalm 51, when David's confessing his sin to the Lord, he says these words, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. Now, did he sin against others? Certainly. He sinned against Bathsheba. He awfully sinned against Uriah. But David understood that first and foremost, and never forget this, sin is an offense against God. Brothers and sisters, we need daily communion with the God of heaven. First John 1 says, if we, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. We're, we are not practicing the truth if we're walking in darkness. You can't have fellowship with God. That's what we need more than anything. So moral reform, though it is good in a sense, is not the real heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the heart. It's a heart and a mind that's given over to him. And the people had totally given their hearts and their minds over to the land, the people, the, the idols of the land around them. Now, I'm going to close with this. And that is the end of the chapter. The people are carried away, and it's a very sad thing to see. But the king of Assyria goes and takes various nations, enemy nations, and places them back in the land. Think about that. God had begun by Joshua to drive these nations out of the land to get the people to a point of peace. To see them overcome the enemy. Now they're carried away back into bondage exactly where they started. And the king of Assyria is placing foreign nations back in the land to occupy it. There's a lot that could be said about that but we don't have the time. I want you to think just a moment of this, and maybe you caught it, but it says in verse 25 that God, the Lord, sent lions among them, which killed some of them. There were lions sent into the land of Samaria in judgment upon these people, and there's lots that could be said about that. But think about this for a moment. As we fast forward to the New Testament, some 700 years later, God sends a lion back into the land of Samaria. Not to destroy, but to deliver. Not to devour, but to bring liberty to a woman. The lion in John chapter 4 is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that time, some 700 years later, I couldn't help but notice the contrast. 
that God would take his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and would send him back into this same very land to a mixed people of mixed religion, a despised people, to a woman who was despised by the despised people who were themselves despised. And here the lion of the tribe of Judah would go back into that same land in an effort not to devour, but to deliver. Not to bring judgment, but to dispense living water. I hope you know the story, but the Lord Jesus meets there in Samaria a woman, as I understand it, the very same land. And this would have been a woman who was from the roots of these people who were a mixed people, and so they were despised. And here the Lord Jesus comes, the lion of the tribe of Judah, to seek to bring deliverance to a woman who was in bondage to sin, evidently so by her life and manner of life. And he comes and says that he has living water to offer to her, life and liberty and freedom from her sin. What a tremendous God we have. What a tremendous Savior we have. There's lots more that could be said. There are thoughts of worship there, both in Second Kings 17, false worship, and then worship again in John 4, some things I had hoped to touch on, but we don't have time. All that to say, may God help us. May God help us to bow the knee to him, to not live a life of history, historied by judgment and bondage and failure. It doesn't have to be that way if we will come to him and fight the war with him. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is to know you and to walk with you. We give you thanks for these real stories that give to us tremendous spiritual imagery, tremendous help to us as we seek to live a life in a spiritual battle, in a victorious spiritual battle, we trust, O God, by your grace and by your help, by your strength, by your power. Help us to do that. We want to be a light shining bright for you individually and corporately here at Boulevard Bible Chapel. Help us to do that. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.